0: Open your Bibles with me this morning, if you would. Let's return to the book of Hebrews, chapter 9. Please follow along as I begin reading again. Chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Then indeed, even the first covenant had ordinances of divine service and the earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was prepared, the first part in which was the lampstand, the table, and the showbread, which is called the sanctuary. And behind the second veil, the part of the tabernacle which is called holiest of all, which had the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant overlaid on all sides with gold, in which were the golden pot that had the manna, Aaron's rod that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. And above it were the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Bow with me as we ask the Lord to bless our study, these words this morning. Lord God, these are your words. This is your book, and we are your people. Bind your words, your book, to us, your people. Put your word deep into us, even as your new covenant has promised. Write these words upon our hearts. Put them in our minds, that our faith may be on these words, your words, your promises, Your truths, through Your Son and our great High Priest, Jesus Christ. Teach us then, O Lord God, Your words today. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. We have started our adventures in the New Covenant. We have read that the Old Covenant has been an old. Chapter 7, verse 18, for on the one hand, there is an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness. We've learned, on the other hand, in chapter 8, verse 13, of the obsolete nature of the old covenant being replaced by a new, where it says, in that he says, a new covenant, he has made the first obsolete. Now, what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. We turn then the corner to these adventures in the New Covenant and what he, is, what he is doing with these Hebrews is taking them briefly back to their remembrances of the tabernacle of God commanded by God to be made by Moses and the people and the items in the sanctuary and in the most holy place. And then he will move on to describe the Old Testament and the Old Covenant sacrificial, sacrificial system. For us, since the old is passed away and we are not Hebrews and we have not grown up with hundreds of years of law-keeping, of trekking on every festival day that was demanded, the three festivals that were demanded of all and every male in Israel to make that obeisance, to make that journey and enjoy their God, we need to be talked about, we need to talk about these things in detail. The writer says we cannot now speak in detail, and he doesn't need to, because they're Hebrews. And they're passing now from the old covenant and the old Mosaic law observances into the new. But we, in the new covenant now, for over 2,000 years, have lost information. And so we are taking a trip to the museum. We're taking field trips, and our first field trip is a visit to the museum of the Tabernacle of God, and we are looking inside the Tabernacle of God that is filled with a symbolism that only Jesus Christ and the heavenly Tabernacle realize and fulfill. So we've looked at the Tabernacle by first taking a trip there and looking and viewing inside the tabernacle, the sanctuary, and those items, those furniture pieces that were inside the first place, the holy place, called the sanctuary as well. And today we are going to look and peek behind the heavy veil curtain into the most holy place, a scene never seen by normal Hebrews. They knew about it from the law. They did not see it because these things dwelt behind the veil, And only the great, only the high priest would enter that place, that sanctum, once a year. So we've seen the lampstand, we've seen the table, we've seen the showbread that are in the sacred place, the first holy place. And we now have been peeking behind the veil of the sanctuary. And I use that word peeking not to make it a light thing we do, but I, I do it because there's a sense in which There's an awe there. There's a glory there. There's a danger there because God was there. And we really were not invited there. The Hebrews were not invited to that close of an association with their God. Their high priest had to represent them to God because no man can see God and live. So only the high priest went there once a year. He went with special clothes once a year. He went with the incense once a year, as we read last week, that would shield the glorious presence of God so that the high priest wouldn't die. It reminds us that though God is gracious and though God is merciful and though God is long-suffering, he is a dangerous God to physical man. He's a dangerous God to sinful man. And that symbolism is tied up in the holy place. He's living with his people. He's come to tabernacle amongst them. But you still are separated by your sinfulness. You still need to bring sacrifices. You still need to approach me with respect and reverence. And so then we looked last week, starting inside of the veil of the holiest place of all, that second veil in the tabernacle. We saw the golden altar of incense that burns with a blessed aroma, a sweet-smelling aroma to the Lord. It was tended and kept by the priests, and the high priest would bring some of those coals with him as he would enter the holiest of all once a year on the Day of Atonement, on the day to make a covering for the sins of Israel. Mind you, This is an invitation that God gives. It is man that had separated himself from God in the Garden of Eden. It's man's sin that keeps men away from God. It is even man's sin that makes us fear God in a terrifying way. But it is God who has continually been coming after man from the Garden of Eden. God went and found Adam and Eve as they were hiding in their sin. And he gave them hope. Yes, they got the curse, but they got the hope of one who is coming, who would deal with sin. And all through the scripture, we see that God is dealing with the sin of man and bringing man back to the closeness that he had designed man for. And now we see this piece of furniture that is behind the second veil. and Behind the second veil, verse 3, the part of the tabernacle, which is called the holiest of all which had the golden altar of incense and now listen the ark of the covenant overlaid on all sides with gold in which were the golden pot that had the manna Aaron's rod that budded and the tablets of the covenant covenant and above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat of necessity the museum would be hushed at this moment Even if this was a remade article, even if this was a man-built scale model of this area, I think you would be struck silent. A number of years ago in California, we were part of a church as we were going to seminary, and the youth group took on a task of making a large gym area into the tabernacle. And they recreated it with their own hands, so far as they were able. And then one Sunday after church, they invited all of the people of the church to take a tour. And as we entered, they had us take our shoes off. But we knew we weren't entering a real tabernacle. It was one they made in replica. Yet we all voluntarily took our shoes off and as you went through, you could hardly hear a whisper. So even though it was a recreation, there was just something about it. I can only imagine what the real one was like. What that did to the spirit of a man. What that did to the heart of a woman. What that did to those who truly worship God. As God had created something that had not been on earth before that time, a way in, a way through to the presence of God, and someone to represent you before God so that you wouldn't have to represent yourself. It's a terrifying thing to think you must stand alone before the living and true God. But God had designed a way for all of the Hebrews and anyone who would come and follow that one true way of religion to know God and to meet God and to hear God But at the same time, they were struck with the sanctity of a holy God. And then you cannot lift your voice. This Ark of the Covenant made. It's interesting. If We go back in our Bibles, and I hope you will with me, and we'll be visiting Exodus again a number of times. And we'll be looking at verse... 10 of chapter 25. And I don't know if you can hold this together from last week, but we've been, we've been walking backwards through the text. In Hebrews, we've been walking forward how a man would enter, how a priest would go from the outside of the holy place to the inside of the first area of the sanctuary. And then how he would go through that veil, that heavy curtain into the very presence of God. But when God told them how to build it, God started here. He started inside. He started with the Ark of the Covenant. He gave them the purpose of the covenant first, verse 8, Exodus 25. God says And let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. True translation, that I may tabernacle among them. That I may pitch my tent with their tents. According to all that I show you, that is, listen, the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. We understand now in our study of Hebrews this is is patterned after a heavenly tabernacle which we are going to visit in another way soon. Verse 10, now the instructions for building the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 10, And they shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. Some of you might say, why didn't they make the whole thing of gold? Well, I'll tell you why. This was made to be carried, to be transported. The temporary nature of the tabernacles, it t- traveled with the people. God traveled with them on their way to the promised land. He was a presence in their midst all along the way. He was an invitation to come unto me, and I am going to tabernacle and live with you, but you get to carry this with you. I think it's a dispensation of grace. It wasn't all gold for the Levites that had to carry it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side, and you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles in the rings on the side of the ark, that the ark may be listened, carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. Leave them in there. I want you ready to move. Boy, isn't there some principles there for Christian living, for following God. God says, move, pick up, and move, and be ready to go. That's another sermon, another day, but just wait for it. It may come. Sixteen, Verse 16, and you shall put into the ark the testimony which I give you. You shall make a mercy seat appear gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width and you shall make two cherubim of gold of hammered work, and you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. And on he describes, but did you notice something about this? See, a cubit, do you know what a cubit is? A cubit is the distance from the tip of the fingers to the elbow of a normal man. I don't know if I'm a normal man from the normal times, but they tell us that a normal man in those times, his cubit was 18 inches. So what we have here is not a very large, not a very large piece, this Ark of the Covenant. It was 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches, or three and three quarters feet long, and two and a quarter feet wide, and two and a quarter feet high. 45 inches by 27 inches by 27 inches. Isn't that interesting? And even the holiest place of all, it's not that big. 10 by 10. 10 feet by 10 feet. Small. It's not meant for a crowd. One high priest once a year, and God's presence. You know, isn't it interesting to compare this to the way men build temples to idols? Isn't it different? The God, very God, who created the heavens and the earth when he commands them to build him a tabernacle and make him a place for his own presence to be, 10 feet by 10 feet only, and the place where he will appear, not even three feet. Just three to four one way, or three to three quarters one way, and 27 inches the other ways. Tiny box of gold. When men build it, they build like the Parthenon, Helvet Greece, and you see that mighty temple that still stands in ruins, and people still make pilgrimage all the way there to see and go, oh wow, what a place. That's what they made to their false God. You go down to South America and you look at what the Mayans have built and what the Aztecs have raised to worship their God. These mighty giant edifices. You go to Egypt, and you see these men who supposedly became gods, and they built themselves the pyramids, and God makes a tent. God makes a tabernacle, a tent, with a, in a tent, covered by veils, and he's going to appear in a little box. The great historian, Christian commentator Alfred Edersheim said, It is very significant that in commanding the details of the tabernacle, God starts with the ark. With the ark as the most holy thing in the most holy place. Then similarly, those about the table of the showbread and the golden candlestick, not only as belonging to the furniture of the holy place, but because, spiritually, the truths which they symbolized life and light in the Lord were the outcome of God's presence between the cherubim. What did they have? They had life. They had light they had God. Only the true God would make something so small and then would remind us that there is no house that can contain Him. That when you look at creation, even that doesn't contain Him. He made it. It is not Him. It reflects his glory, but it does not define him completely. The heavens declare the glories of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. But God sent his son to tabernacle amongst us that those who couldn't see him then would. So we are on a history lesson. We are being given a trip to the museum of the tabernacle of God and we've now seen this beautiful golden box and he starts inside in hebrews he says the golden pot with the manna is inside the history lesson is this the history lesson of the ark of the covenant to the people of israel and to us today is this it is remember me Remember me. Why the manna inside? There is a history lesson there. As soon as you say manna, you have to say, what's that? And to do that, we go back in our Bibles to the children of Israel now having been set free from their bondage of slavery in in Egypt and God bringing them through and across And they, murmuring against him. In Exodus, the 16th chapter now, we read of their journey. And they journeyed from Elim, and all the congregation of the children of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the 15th day of the second month after they departed from the land of Egypt. Now notice, the gratefulness of the hearts of the delivered people of the Hebrews. Oh, that's not in your Bible? Oh, it's not in mine either. This is what's in my Bible. Verse 2, Then the whole congregation of the children of Israel murmured against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the children of Israel said to them, Oh, that we had died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, and when we ate bread to the fill. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Isn't that the way grateful people act when they're delivered from slavery? It sure seems to be. They're complaining about the diet, which I know never happens at your home. Never happens among your children. Never happens to husbands or wives. Hey, men, where have you been? Have you been in front of that refrigerator? Huh? You ever been there? You open the thing up. You don't even know why you're there. You're just opening the thing up. You're hoping. You're hoping something. Something there's going to like satisfy whatever it is that's happening inside you. And you're looking. You're looking for that fulfillment. You're looking for that glory. You're looking at that. Oh, I didn't know that was still in here. Or who bought this? And when you don't find it, what do you do? You know, this is why they make refrigerator drawers really stout. <laughs> There's never any food in here. That's what kids say, and none of us men here, but if we did, we're done now. Murmuring against the plenty in the land of plenty that we've been given, we're just like them. They're murmuring. They're upset. They're not happy. And so God condescends to help them. In verse 4, we read this, chapter 16, Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a certain quota every day, that I may listen, that I may listen, that I may, are you listening? That I may test them, whether they will walk in my law or not. And it shall be on the sixth day that they shall prepare what they bring in, and it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. Wow. God's going to rain bread from heaven. Now, let's skip along. You need to read all of this in your spare time, but I don't have spare time, so I'm going to verse 15. Follow along. I'll, I'll start in 14. And when the layer of dew lifted, There on the surface of the wilderness was a small round substance as fine as frost on the ground. So when the children of Israel saw it, they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, This is the bread which the Lord has given you to eat. Now I want to tell you something. It's not a secret, but it is a big reveal. Manna, is translated into English and it means what is it So as soon as you say man in Hebrew you're saying what what is this stuff refrigerator doors are open you're looking in with the children of Hebrew of the Hebrews and they say what is It's what is this. That's what it is. Bread from heaven only lasts one day. If you gather more than you're supposed to, it only lasts one day. Before the Sabbath, you're supposed to gather twice. Just a certain amount. Notice, let's skip down to 33. Verse 33 in chapter 16 of, of Exodus. And Moses said to Aaron, take a pot and put an omer of manna in it and lay it up before the Lord to be kept for your generations. That's what was kept. What used to disappear stayed there. Put in the Ark of the Covenant. What is it? Verse 34, And the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron laid it up before the testimony to be kept. And the children of Israel ate manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is one-tenth of an ephah. That's what they were supposed to get for each person. Each person got an omer every day. If you're a fat guy, big guy, got an omer. If you're a little skinny guy, got an omer. If you're a child, omer, omer, omer. That's how much you got. What's for dinner today? It's manna. How much are you gonna get? Get an omer. Is that all you get? Yep, that's all you get. Can I have some of yours? Nope, it's mine. Will I be full? Yep. How's that work? I don't know. What is it? I don't know. But we're alive. But we are alive. We have life in the wilderness by the hand of God, though we are complaining the entire way and murmuring against the Lord. Why is this in the ark? To remember me when you murmured when you complained when you stood at the refrigerator and said what in the world is this i'm a man a man can't live on this i think that's where they got those wafers for communion I'm, i don't know i'm just i'm just i'm just spitballing here what are those things that's why we use unleavened bread so you kind of know what is it that was inside to remind them of God's provision. Remember God's provision, his undeserved grace of provision while you complained, God provided. They didn't deserve it, God gave it. Now, we move in our our study and our trip to the museum to Aaron's rod that budded to Aaron's rod that budded. For this, I want to take you to another book that gives us greater detail, the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers, chapter 16 is where we'll start. Chapter 16, some of you know, is about a rebellion. A man named Korah rebels against the leadership of Moses and Aaron. God had established Moses as the leader, Aaron to be his mouthpiece, Aaron to be the first high priest. And Korah raises up 250 250 men, leaders of Israel, to try and challenge his leadership and try to say to him that he doesn't deserve to be the boss of them. Chapter 16, or 15 verse 13, or excuse me, 16. That's what I said, 16, yes. It is a small thing, they say to Moses and Aaron, that you have brought us up out of the land flowing with milk and honey. Remember, that's what God's promise was to them. You're gonna get a land of milk and honey. And they say, yeah, well, where we came from was a land of milk and honey. So this is just full of sarcasm. Brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey, to kill us in the wilderness. Notice the theme. That you should keep acting like a prince over us. Why'd they use that term? Because Moses had become the son of the daughter of Pharaoh and he was a prince of Egypt. Who are you, you prince of Egypt, bringing us out here to a land of milk and honey? Yeah, we were in a land of milk and honey. We're done with you. Moreover, you have not brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey, nor given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. Will you put out the eyes of these men? We will not come up. Go ahead and command us. Well, God commands all these guys to make themselves some incense containers, some censers they're called, and to bring them. And God would show who he accepts, and Aaron brought his, and they all brought theirs, and Theirs weren't accepted. Aaron's was, long story short, God said to the children of Israel, this is a rebellion. Get yourself away from these rebels. And so the entire congregation of all the Israelites who moved away from them and their tents and their families and their livestock, and God opened up the earth and swallowed them. I wonder if it's a dangerous thing to challenge God's leadership of Moses and Aaron. That happens. They're all swallowed up, and you would think, rebellion over, baby. God wins. Moses and Aaron on easy street. No more murmuring. Everything's going to be just fine, right? Well, it's not verse 41 right after they all get swallowed up chapter 16 numbers on the next day all the congregation of the children of israel murmured against moses and aaron saying you have killed the people of the lord didn't blame god they blamed moses and aaron i think they think they're taking a safe step away from god i think they're going to find out different. So now here we have it. Now it happened when the congregation had gathered against Moses and Aaron that they turned toward the tabernacle of meeting, and suddenly the cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron came before the tabernacle of meeting, and the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Get away from among this congregation, that I may consume them in a moment. And they, Moses and Aaron, fell on their faces. So Moses said to Aaron, Take a censer and put fire in it from the altar. Put incense on it and take it quickly to the congregation and make atonement for them. For wrath has gone out from the Lord. The plague has begun. Then Aaron took it as Moses commanded and ran into the midst of the congregation. And already the plague had begun among the people. So he put the incense and made atonement for the people. And he stood between the dead and the living. What are we remembering? Remembering rebellion. What are we remembering? We're remembering a representative who went between the rebellion of man and the wrath of God to make atonement for the people. And he stood before the dead and the living, so the plague stopped. Now, those who had died in the plague, listen to me, were 14,700 besides those who died in Korah's incident. So Aaron returned to Moses at the door of the tabernacle of meeting after the plague. And the Lord spoke to Moses, chapter 17, verse 1, Speak to the children of Israel and get from them a rod from each father's house, all their leaders according to their families, houses, twelve rods, each man write his name on the rod. And as the Bible tells us, they were supposed to offer them up before the Lord. And the one which budded, The rod that had no buds on it, like a staff made as a walking stick, the one that would bud was the one that God accepted. The one who God accepted. And what happened? There was one that was accepted. Now it came to pass, verse 8, on the next day that Moses went into the tabernacle of witness and behold the rod of Aaron of the house of Levi had sprouted and put forth buds had produced blossoms listen now and had yielded ripe almonds what's this called? A miracle And what are we supposed to remember? Rebellion undeserved deliverance a representative to stand between a rebellious people, between the wrath of God and their due punishment, now chosen. Then Moses brought all the rods from before the Lord to all the children of Israel, and they looked, and each man took his rod. And the Lord said to Moses, Bring Aaron's rod back before the testimony to be kept. Bring it back before the testimony to be kept as a sign, listen, against the rebels. That you may put their murmurings away from me, lest they die. Thus did Moses, just as the Lord had commanded him, so he did. The fear of the Lord fell upon the people. The fear of the Lord fell upon the people. But they had someone to stand before them. Chapter 18, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear the iniquity related to the sanctuary. And you and your sons with you shall bear the iniquity associated with your priesthood. I'm putting it on you. I'm putting it on you, sons of Aaron. I'm putting it on you, tribe of Levi, priests, to bear the iniquity of the people and to bear your own before the Lord. You will bear this terror. You will bear this weight. You will be the intermediary. You shall see me. Remember God's power in judgment. Remember God's power in judgment, but remember, remember God chooses who leads and chooses you to follow. Reverence is important in our relationship with God. Even now, we may not go without a great high priest. We need Jesus. Even in Matthew, we read chapter 10, verse 28, and do not fear those who kill the body, says Jesus but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both body and soul in hell. It's quiet in the most holy place. And the articles inside the Ark of the Covenant demand it. And now the tablets of the covenant. Our text said also that the tablets of the covenant were inside. Those things which God wrote and gave to Moses, that Moses brought off the mountain, those would be the law of Moses, the testimony of God himself, the truth of God, the way to come close to God, the way to relate to God, the way to live with God in your midst. Why were there all those laws? God was saying, this is how you live with me. A holy God in your midst. There is a way in which you approach a holy God, and this is the way, a way unto God through His Word as well. Remember, the lesson of history is remember God's promises. Remember God's promises. Those tablets of the covenant. In Exodus 25 again, Look at verse 16. We've touched on it, but here it is again. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. Isn't that interesting the way God talks about his word? See, also the ark of the covenant is also called the ark of the testimony, interchangeable words. It is the place where what God said is kept. The word of God, the precious deliverance FROM GOD OF HIS OWN TESTIMONY, IF ANYONE TESTIFIES TRUTH, IT'S GOD. ALL MEN ARE LIARS. AND GOD SAYS, I AM NOT A MAN THAT I SHOULD LIE. AND GOD HAS GIVEN AN INDELIBLE TRUTH THAT HE PASSED TO MOSES THAT'S KEPT IN THE ARK OF THE COVENANT IN THE MOST HOLY PLACE the promises of God are kept there. Even in verse 21 of Exodus 16, and you shall put the mercy seat on top of the ark, and in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. Later, every single priest was commanded to take of that testimony and make his own copy so that he would know the law of God. And so all the children of Israel would know the law of God. Verse 22, Exodus 16, And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony, of all these things which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. Here you have the word of God. Did you know? that the Ark is a representative. It is a symbol of a God who promises and keeps his promises. The Ark of the Covenant is from a promising God who keeps his promises. Even the Ten Commandments that are part of the law of Moses remind us of God's promises. God had said that you shall be my people. And in Exodus 22, we read the Ten Commandments begin this way. You shall have no other gods before me. Why no other gods? Because there aren't any other. I am the one God, he says, and there are no gods besides me. Worship me. I am the one, remember I'm the one who promised you I am the true God, you shall have no gods before me. And even the very presence of God, the ark is the covenant of God and the presence of God who speaks to you, his people, and tells you with every remembrance, I shall be your God. And so you cannot approach God without approaching his word. So many people say that, even in our day, you know, oh yes, I have a relationship with God. I know God. I talk to him every day, people tell me. I say, well, are you a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ? Oh, no. Oh, no. I find my own way to God, they tell me. And I think they're very genuine in that. I used to be one of those people. There's people who think, well, you know, you can just worship God because you're a spiritual person and you feel spiritual, so you can spiritually say and think what you want about God. And God is even saying here through hundreds of years of testimony, here is my word, here is my presence, here is the way into my presence. You come through these priests, and when you come, you come according to this word. If you come any other way, you will die. This is all preparatory for the one way to God through his son, Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except how? But by me. So you can't just worship for worship's sake. You can't just say I have a relationship with God for relationship's sake. You've got to come according to the way God said to come. You approach God, you approach him according to his word, and nowadays it's through Jesus Christ, and then it was through the high priest and faith in the promises of God given and kept in the Ark of the Covenant. That was law. Even a couple of priests who tried to bring a different Recipe for the incense into the presence of God. Sons of the high priest were killed in the sanctum of God. It's in your Bible. It's in your Bible. I move you now to the cherubim of glory. Not only was this a box, it was an ornate box. It was a gold-covered box, and it was covered its lid with the cherubim of glory, Exodus 25, again, verse 17, shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two and a half cubic shall be its length and a cubit its width. What are we to remember? What's the history lesson here, Pastor Fred? The cherubim. What are the cherubim? Who are these ones? Does anyone remember the first cherubim ever mentioned, ever sent on a duty in the Bible? If you turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, you find the first mention. You find in Genesis 3. Genesis 3 is a sorry chapter because it comes after the fall of man when they took, or it lists the fall of man where they took of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil against God's word. Against God's word. He said, do not eat of it. They ate of it. And sin came into the world and death through sin. So God drove the man and the woman out of the Garden of Eden. And the Bible tells us this, chapter 3, verse 24. So he drove out the man and he placed, listen, cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. That's actually protective. That's protective. If they would have eaten of the tree of life, they would have been forever, forever stuck in sin. A cherubim was sent to do the duty. What's another place we have? Well, I turn to that to one of the prophets, to the prophet Ezekiel. The book of Ezekiel, we find the rebellious people of Israel again after many hundreds of years and many kings who refused to follow God and they've been cast out of the land. The Babylonians have taken them into captivity and this prophet of Israel prophesies to them and he sees a vision. Chapter 1 of Ezekiel, verse 4, And I looked and behold, a whirlwind was coming out of the north. A great cloud was raging. With raging fire, engulfing itself, and brightness was all around it, radiating out of its midst like the color of amber, out of the midst of the fire. And also within it came the likeness of four living creatures, and this was their appearance. They had the appearance of a man. Each one had four faces, and each one had four wings. Their legs were straight, and the soles of their feet were like the soles of calves' feet. They sparkled like the color of burnished bronze, and they had the hands of a man under their wings and on their four sides, and each of the four had faces and wings. Their wings touched one another. The creatures did not turn when they went, but each one went straight forward as the likeness of their faces. Each one had the face of a man. Each of the four had the face of a lion on the right side. Each of the four had the face of an ox on the left side. Each of the four had the face of an eagle. Thus were the faces. Their wings were stretched out, two wings of of each one touched one another and two covered their bodies. And then there's wheels, verse 15. And now I looked in the living creatures. Behold, a wheel was on the earth beside each living creature with their four faces, the appearance of the wheels and of their works was like the color of beryl and all the four had the likeness of the parents and the, uh, their works was as it were a wheel in the middle of a wheel. And as they went, they went toward any one of the four directions. They did not turn aside. When they went, uh, as for the rims, that they were so high, they were awesome and the rims were full of eyes all around the four of them and when the living creatures went the wheels went with, beside them and when the living creatures were lifted up from the earth the e- wheels were lifted up from the earth wherever the spirit wanted to go they went because there where th- there the spirit went and the wheels were lifted together with them for the spirit of the living creatures was in the wheels Whoa. why did God show Ezekiel that? Because the children of Israel were in punishment. And their punishment has caused God to be just. When man fell in the garden, a just and merciful God put a cherubim to protect them from going back into the Garden of Eden and dying eternally. So the hope of eternal life that he had promised would come about. And why did God show Ezekiel when the people have been cast out of the land for their error, for their rebellion against God, and are in the land of the Babylonians as slaves? So they can remember that God's in control. The power of God has not been diminished by the sin of God's people And even the very presence of God is still being protected in reality in likeness of what was protecting the mercy seat and the glory of God symbolically and even literally to a degree in the most holy place. These were to be made of pure gold, beautiful swooping wings that covered the mercy seat the protectors of what is precious, but they were also a reminder that he who sits here is dangerous. He who sits here is glorious, and man cannot stand in the way of this glory, this glory of God. It's too much for you, and there's three ways you can protect See, even the posture of these angels to have their wings over the top of the mercy seat, protecting it and looking toward the mercy seat, in a sense, protecting it under the cover of their wings. There's a three ways you can protect. You can protect from self or hurting yourself. I don't think that's it. You can protect from danger, outside danger. I don't think God's worried about that or you can protect man from god what's inside from breaking out just like in the garden of eden he protected them from themselves and even in the tabernacle he protected them from his glory in psalm 99:1 we read the lord reigns let the peoples tremble he dwells between the cherubim let the earth be moved Remember, God is dangerous. And now the mercy seat where we will end today, our trip to the museum, it's hard to even muster up the saliva we need to swallow. The sanctity, the enormity of what we're seeing and what we've been saying, the awesomeness of God, and yet in us burns a desire to be close, in us, we know we need to do some kind of business with this God. We know that he is there. We know that he has promised. What will we do? How shall we get through? Well, we remember. We remember why there is this lid. And we remember the name that God gave to this lid himself. Exodus 25, 22, And there I will meet with you. God designed a place for man to come to him. Man didn't design this. Man didn't build this other than by instructions of God. It says, and I will speak with you from above, listen, the mercy seat from between the two cherubim which are on the ark of the testimony of all things which I give you in commandment to the children of Israel. I'll be there for you. I will speak there to you. Remember, God is merciful and where he sits is the seat of mercy. This is to remind us, God is merciful to the guilty. God is merciful to the guilty, and we all, like sinners, have gone astray. It is really interesting that another translation for the mercy seat is this, the atonement cover. The place where sin is atoned for, the the place where sin is covered by God. God's glorious presence is the important feature of the tabernacle, not the size of the tabernacle, not the gold of the tabernacle, not the weavings of the tabernacle, not the ornate figurines that are around, but God himself is the centerpiece of the tabernacle. He is there. He was willing to meet with them and cover their sins. The temples of the idols are empty. From the Parthenons to the Mayan temples to the pyramids, they're empty and full of dead men who worship falsely but this god is alive and yet this god has changed things and he is changing it so that man might come nearer than ever before because through the breaking of the covenant of Moses something happened that is recorded in this book and it's a terrible thing that happened one of the saddest things that ever happened on the face of the earth is that two of people who'd been given the very presence of god whom god said come and meet with me and who god said live with me and keep my ways and even One year out of seven, you will have off. You will have free to worship me and to celebrate me and to enjoy this land of milk and honey. You will have my rest. You will be my people. You will know my presence. And they didn't do it. But God isn't done. Though it seems these cherubim are also symbolic of the presence of God. They're called presence angels. And Ezekiel also has a vision. He has a vision of rampant idolatry in the land of Israel. Even after he and so many others like Daniel were taken into captivity in Babylon, you would think they would change, just like we thought they would change after their murmurings in the desert. But they didn't. And so God gives Ezekiel a vision. Ezekiel 10. And I looked in there in the firmament that was above the head of the cherubim. There appeared something like a sapphire throne having the appearance of the likeness of a throne. He's been in the temple. He's been seeing how people are worshiping falsely in the temple of God. And now this vision is given to him of the temple. And verse 2, And he spoke to the man clothed with linen and said, Go in among the wheels under the cherub. Fill your hands with coals of fire from among the cherubim and scatter them over the city. And he went in as I watched. Now the cherubim were standing on the south side of the temple, when the man went in and the cloud filled the inner court. Then the glory of the Lord, listen, went up from the cherubim and paused over the threshold of the temple And the house was filled with the cloud. And the court was full of the brightness of the Lord's glory. The glory of God had come down to man and dwelt among them. And man had rebelled against God and refused to come to him. And went to the idols of the world. And now Ezekiel sees these cherubim of glory and the very glory of God. And it is moved from the inner sanctum. It has come away and apart from the holy of holies. And it is now on the threshold, the door. sound of the wings of the cherubim was heard, even in the outer court, like the voice of Almighty God when he speaks. Now it happened when he commanded the man clothed in linen, saying, take fire from among the wheels, from among the cherubim. And he went in and stood beside the wheels, and the cherub stretched out his hand from among the cherubim to the fire that was among the cherubim, and took some of it and put it in the hands of the man clothed with linen who took it and went out. The cherubim appeared to have the form of a man's hand under their wings. The very coals from the altar. The sacred sacrifices taken away. What's happening? What's happening? Verse 15, and the cherubim were lifted up, this was the living creatures I saw by the river Kibar. When the cherubim went and the wheels went beside them, and when the cherubim lifted their wings to mount up from the earth, the same wheels also did not turn from beside them. When the cherubim stood still, the wheels stood still. When one was lifted up, the other lifted itself up, for the spirit of the living creature was in them. Now pay attention here. Verse 18. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And The cherubim lifted their wings and mounted up from the earth in my sight. When they went out, the wheels were beside them and they stood at the door of the east gate of the Lord's house and the glory of the Lord, of the God of Israel was above them. The glory of God that once came so graciously, so gloriously, so resplendently to the people of Israel is leaving Ezekiel looks up as it were and the glory of God moves away from man. The glory departed. After the Babylonian capture of Israel there's no historical record of the Ark of the Covenant ever again. When they built the new temple under Ezra there was no ark to return. When Herod rebuilt and made the mighty temple that Jesus pointed to and said, not one stone of this temple will stand, but they'll all be cast down. He knew, every high priest knew, that in the most holy place, there was no presence of God above the cherubim on the mercy seat because the ark was gone. Where now for mercy, O Israel? Where now for the word of God, O ye chosen ones? Where now is the hope that was lost? Where do we go? for such a thing. Hebrews says, now this is the main point of the things we are saying. Verse 1, chapter 8. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. A heavenly tabernacle, the glory of God, rose up with the cherubim of God, and the presence of God is unshielded, unguarded, free and open, and it is Jesus the Christ, the great high priest, who ushers all who believe in him through the one way to come boldly now to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace for help in time of need. Where is that throne of mercy? Where is that one who will stand between me and God's wrath? It is the man Christ Jesus, the tabernacle, is obsolete. The presence of God is not to be found, but it can be in Christ Jesus. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He's here today. His very presence is here. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ who is your sacrifice for your sins. He placated God in his wrath. He took God's wrath on himself for you. You believe in him and you will be saved and you will see the glory of God in heaven. Let's pray. Help us, O Lord God, to seek you in your presence above all things. Let us not go back to the tabernacle of your past, but let us look forward to your heavenly tabernacle where Jesus, our Christ, our great high priest, ministers on our behalf before you in your glorious splendor. May we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. May we look for heaven to come to earth as God has promised. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.